Hi, I'm Nomi. Welcome back to Junk Drawer. And here I have with me... Jessica. All right. And what's our word for today? The word for today is Nabentext. What's that mean? Nabentext is an old German word that refers to anything that happens in a script that is not actually the dialogue. For example, if you see someone in the script giving a long speech and then it says that they cross the stage downstage and talk to a big group of people, the Nabin text is the part where they're crossing downstage, not the part where they're talking to the big group of people. Where'd you learn this? I learned this back in college. I was actually a dramaturgy type person in college. I was a theater major and I found the idea of Nabin text fascinating because I think that it is interesting to hear about all the parts that aren't actually the words that are spoken in life. There's a lot of things that happen in the in-between moments. People have a lot of things to say, but it seems to me that a lot of who they are and what they do comes out in how they behave. And that is not dissimilar to the idea of Nabin text. Like body language or like their actions speak louder than their words? Yes and yes. Both of them are true. And in the Nabin text, you also have the things that other people respond to them with. For instance, I could say in a script that I decided to throw the book on the floor, and that would reveal quite a bit about my personality if I'm willing to throw something as precious as a book. On the other hand, if you were the one to come along after me, pick up that book and put it back on the table, that would reveal a lot about your personality as well. All that is contained within the Nabin text. All right. Why did you use book as an example? Is that something that you hold dear to you? That is definitely something I hold dear to me. I am lucky enough that I get to write for a living and I enjoy every moment of my job. However, I also enjoy reading in my off time. And the thought of being the person who would ever throw the book in anger is somewhat horrifying to me. And at the same time, I would really admire somebody who picked the book back up off the floor and put it on the table to save the book. Save the book. All right. But don't you ever have moments where you want to kind of throw something? Definitely moments where I want to throw something. However, I can pretty much count on one hand the number of books I've ever wanted to throw. And I have this feeling usually like I have to finish a book no matter what once I've started it, except for a handful that I just couldn't bring myself to finish because the writing was so terrible. The writing itself or the actual story is what bugs you? It depends on which one we're referring to. Some of them are books that are quite popular for people. Others are things nobody else has ever heard of for the most part. But they bothered me for one reason or another. And even those books, I would not necessarily have thrown. So you don't want to throw them because they're like a physical thing that's worth money? Or you don't want to throw them because you think the actual words inside is what's valuable? I think that there's definitely some books that are worth some money. I happen to have a couple that are special to me. I have one that was signed by Maya Angelou, the poet, on my birthday many years ago. Um, it was given to me by my mom who waited in line just to have her sign it. And I was actually the last person's book that she signed for that day. I would say something like that is very valuable in terms of monetary value as well as emotional value. On the other hand, there are things that are just sort of precious in the writing themselves. I think that people inherently don't want to see certain things thrown. I can think of many teachers, you'll know who I mean when I say Mrs. Aiken, wouldn't want to see something like a book on the Constitution thrown. I think there are people that don't want to see things like yearbooks thrown, that the actual content of the book is worth far more to them than the physical makeup of the paper and the ink.
All right. What's worth more to you? A book with pictures and art? A book with a um, bunch of words and a story? Or like a yearbook or something? I or a phone book? Oh, a phone book. I haven't thought of a phone book in a while. I don't think a phone book is super valuable valuable to me at this point in time. I would probably go with saying that a book that encapsulates moments in history is most valuable to me. You could say that those are books that have things like the original images of the actual nurses landing on Omaha Beach some of the greatest photography ever put together. You could also say some of the life magazines that have been encapsulated into books would be of value. They definitely capture moments in history. On the other hand, there's also books that have text that equally capture moments in history. Certainly I would say Shakespeare is one of those that inherently captures quite a bit of history. I think that's also getting us back to the idea of the Nabin text. There's a lot woven into the story and kind of the makeup of how things come together without actually relying on the words themselves. Have you seen the picture of the girl on fire from the Vietnamese war? I have seen that picture. Do you know she's still alive? Yes. I think the one that I find a little more horrifying is the mother who is bathing her child in the, I guess you would say almost horse trough of water after being exposed to radiation poisoning from one of the um, bombs dropped in World War II. It's a really terrifying picture. Never seen that. That does sound horrible. It is horrible. But there's also some good memories that are captured in some of that historical photography. The infamous, I think you would say, um, photography of the work shall set you free hanging up over Auschwitz that many people have, of course, now used in speaking out against COVID-19, social distancing, pandemic measures. I think that there's some photography like that that is infamous in its grasp of history. I think there are also many pieces that people would consider kind of a piece of history that aren't necessarily, for want of a better phrase, legitimate, that they were staged to best represent the moment in time. For instance, the beautiful image a lot of people think of post-World War II of the sailor bending the nurse over in kind of a backwards dip and he's kicking, kissing her while she's kicking up her leg and everything looks so spontaneous in the moment with all the parades going on. It was actually a staged photo. It was based on a real couple. Didn't you take a picture in front of that with dad after he got home? That is a duplicated statue that we have down by the midway. It is um, kind of a representation of the photo that was taken in New York City. Oh. I think it was New York City. It might have been Boston. New York or Boston, one of the two. All right. What other questions do you have for me about Naven text or scripts or Naven. words? Um, what what draws you to that word? Like, why would you pick that for right now? I think conceptually, it's interesting to have all of the little bits and pieces that happen in between the words themselves in life come through. I think there's meaning in there in all the pauses and the moments in between. However, I find the word itself to be interesting because I do not speak any German, and it sounds like one of those wonderful German <laughs> words. I grew up speaking English and had the bare bones of Spanish at a very young age, switched over into French in school, and I'm actually pretty decent with French, but you hear a word like text, and it sounds guttural and raw, like it has some sort of magic to it, and in some ways, I guess it does. Um, do you think you, like, like, why, 
why do you think it kind of fell by the wayside? Because I've never heard that word before today. Naven text? Yeah. I think it's more of a term embedded in people who like to work with dramaturgy and scripts and script analysis and kind of the world of a play and how something comes together to translate from the written printed word over to the actual production as somebody releases it. It's not really a word that the everyday public would use. I do think the concept is one that a lot of people understand that the, as you put it, sort of the moments, um, the unspoken moments of body language or the way people treat each other. People understand that concept, even if they don't know the word itself as a term of vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, it is, um, it is also a concept that appealed to me because I had, like I mentioned, started out in dramaturgy years ago. It's sort of the fine art, if you will, of taking a script and either reworking an old script so it is, has meaning for a modern day audience or taking a new script and developing it for a modern day audience. Either way, it's sort of two paths leading to the same endpoint, which is taking work that is printed on paper and giving it meaning for a wide enough group of people that they will sort of fall into that world of that play for a couple hours, but also not make it so simplistic that you're beating them over the head with the meeting. Some of the pieces of that that I find interesting were, of course, the lobby displays where you have extra pieces that come together. I know there's plenty of little kids that have gone to see a play and outside the play, of course, they have extra explanations hanging up in the lobby of all the different costume pieces. That's a really familiar one to people. Another thing, of course, is to add extra pieces into the program for someone who's going to sit there and read anything ahead of time, explaining kind of a plot synopsis. You usually see that with um, historical plays or plays that maybe people don't necessarily conceptualize the script in terms of modern day language, that they need just enough of a bridge to get them out of an older phrasing and pattern and into something that we recognize as modern day conversation. You see that quite a bit. Another thing I don't think people necessarily latch onto as much and is used very subtly, more so in film than in theater per se, is the use of music to sort of force your emotions in a certain direction. So even if you're not getting every word that's, hap that's um, being said on stage or every single bit of moment that's sort of being portrayed, you are able to kind of ride the wave of emotions as it's presented to you. It's something that's sort of overlooked. In a theater, another way people will typically take that and steer that one way or another to sort of convey the meaning of things is, of course, through lighting. If I have a modern day piece done in a black box situation with a static lighting situation that holds steady throughout the entire show, I'm very much relying upon the actors on stage to take everything and present it to the audience. On the other hand, if you're doing a very period type play, there's certainly something to be said for adding in candlelight or in today's day and age, fake candlelight, candles with switches on the bottom into things. Or in movies, of course, you see people bring torches. There's ways to convey emotional meaning without actually relying on the words themselves in the dialogue. Okay. And when you take, um, say, like a book or a movie and you turn it into a play, how does the writing translate into a script, translate to the stage, translate into maybe a film? Yeah, it's a really good question. I do not work with film. I have never worked with film. I do not want to work with film. However, with that being said, I think we're usually more in tune with going the other direction. Very often we have a book that has become a, has become a script and then from there sometimes is taken into a play, or I'm sorry, is taken into a movie 
or we have a book that is taken directly into a screenplay for a movie. I don't usually see one that goes the other direction. I think maybe the only example I can think of is how some people will take um, some of the cuter little kid type movies and then turn them into easy readers for books. I think that's the only example I can think of where they go the other direction with it. But in answer to your question, it is essentially taking the idea of the characters and making them make sense no matter what form they're in. So I guess you could compare it to someone taking a pair of black shoes. A pair of black shoes would make sense in the form of black Nikes if you're going for a run. They would make sense in the form of black heels if you're going out to dinner someplace elegant. They would make sense in the form of black flip-flops if you're going to the beach. But you're still able to say that is a pair of black shoes. You can take that black that black pair of shoes and funnel it a lot of different directions, but in the end, it's still going to be written as black shoes in a script. So on stage, you could very easily have somebody wear a certain pair of black shoes because you're never going to see the bottom of them. They're going to be walking across the stage. In a film, you could certainly use whatever shoes you wanted and change them out because you have the ability to edit them down into however you want to present it. Still, it's a pair of black shoes. All right. And when it comes from uh, one piece of media to another, whose job is it to really make the characters come to life? Is it the actors? Uh, Everybody. Everyone? Just all would, working together? I would say everyone has to work together. Otherwise, you've lost that sense of collaboration. And if you aren't all collaborating, you're essentially working with different pieces of artwork. Aren't you working with different pieces of artwork anyway? Like how the lighting is kind of like photography and the music is, of course, their musicians and the actors are. I would say actors. you're working with different components of the same piece of artwork, though. As soon as you stop communicating, as soon as you stop collaborating, you're no longer working on the same piece. Like different colors in a painting. I think more like how um, probably around sixth or seventh grade, a lot of students in class do that project where everyone is given a different square out of a square of like, let's say a grid of 24 pieces, and you don't necessarily have access to the full piece of artwork. You have just your part that you're duplicating, but then a teacher takes them and adds them all together. And now you see the final piece. I think it's something more along those lines where you're all working on the same piece collaboratively. Okay. I, I know that in eighth grade, we did a giant one of Frida Kahlo and your yes. name in text is about um, your actions, not necessarily your words. How does that relate to um, more traditional art? Like, I know traditional art is a little bit about communicating your feelings. Would that be kind of a part of it? Since you're not speaking that, but you're still showing how you feel. You're showing your emotions uh, on a canvas or a piece of paper or in a sculpture. I would say look at it from the other point of view. Instead of looking at it from the final product point of view, of an actor or a director or a costume designer or anybody reading the script and looking at that as the point of communication, look at it from the other way. Look at it from the playwright's point of view, that they were trying to communicate something by what they either put in or also what they left out when they started adding pieces into the script. That was them making deliberate emotional choices that they laid down onto a piece of paper. What do you mean left out? Like, why would you leave out part of the story? Um, you definitely want to have some room to breathe in there. If you give somebody every detail, you've left no room for 
the brush strokes, if you will, of the artistry of the director, the costume designer, anybody else involved with the show. You want to leave a little bit of room for artistic, well, most people want to leave some room for artistic interpretation. You also convey just as much sometimes with what you do leave out as with what you put in. For instance, if I say that there are five people seated at the table and I describe the intricate embroidery on four of the shirts that those people are wearing and the fifth one, I don't describe it. I've left quite a bit of room for you to question, does that fifth person have something as intricate and moneyed as the four other people? Or is that person a servant? Or is that person wearing a shirt at all? What meaning did I put in there by leaving out specific instructions? Uh, so you can change the whole story just by putting out one little thing. You can change it or you can choose to deliberately infuse it with a sense of not wanting or not needing those answers to convey what the artist tried to tell you in the first place. So Negative space, if you will. Oh, so like... With your example, they're trying to communicate that there's five people, not that there's four people and a servant. They might be. But if I tell you four people have, let's switch it over to a uniform shirt instead. If I tell you four people have a shirt that is a polo style shirt with a nondescript logo, possibly from a security company embroidered on the left shoulder, like you've seen on a lot of different polo shirts have their logos embroidered there. And I don't describe the fifth person. Is that for fifth person wearing a suit and tie because they're in charge of the four that are wearing the more workable polo shirt? Or is that fifth person wearing all of their clothing on their back because they're homeless? What did I deliberately choose to not include in that concept as I laid it out for you. And when I did that, does it mean that the four people at the table are what we should be focusing on because they are all in uniform? Or did I deliberately imply that we should be focusing on the fifth person that is not wearing what the others are? What did I, as someone writing down those words, leave you able to believe? That makes a lot of sense in writing, but how would you convey that in a play or in a painting? Would it work the same? I think in a script, a stage script, you are able to sort of recognize that same idea, especially in scenery. If I describe very vividly what the set looks like and how somebody is traipsing on the set. I didn't say walking. I didn't say um, running across the set. I didn't say somebody was daintily skipping across the set. I said they were traipsing on it. I left you room to interpret that that might be something like a wooden clunky deck or something that there's a lot of um, echoing going on in that room, especially in the scenery. I think that happens that what you put in or what you leave out can be visually interpreted. So that would be how the writer interprets it, right? It's definitely what the writer gave the people to interpret. Okay. And how would the audience interpret that if they're watching this play? Well, there you have something magical coming from your dramaturg. They need to make that make sense in accordance with the director and everybody else who is working on the production itself. They have their task laid out for them to take that script that the audience is never going to see and make sure that meaning comes through on the stage. 
So that kind of goes back to your everyone's working together. They have to communicate that to their exactly. coworkers. Exactly. So it all fits one big thing. Exactly. Right. And now you have us back to real life where you can communicate quite a bit about how everything comes together just with what you do or don't add in. Could you do that non-art in a workplace or a school setting? I don't know that you could do that in every setting. I haven't entirely thought it through, but I think there are many settings where you need to be very specific. Law certainly is one of them. Government certainly is one of them. I would go so far as to say public policy um, is probably another one of them. On the other hand, I think there's many places where you could apply that. I can think of floral design for weddings might be one of them. Um, culinary arts might be another one. What you put in and what you leave out have just as much significance. Okay. It still kind of ties into art though. The culinary is still making yeah, something Yeah, I could good. see that. I could see that. The florist is still making something look good. I could see that. Maybe there's a visual component or an artistic component to it inherently. Sure. I'll take that. And then again, there's art in almost anything you can do. I don't know. I've been through accounting offices. I don't know that that's true. <laughs> um, well, you could doodle on a piece of paper. True. Wherever you are, as long as there's paper and a pen. That's true. And even if there's and you can draw on the dirt. So you can take art anywhere you go. I've seen my daughter draw on her shoes and her arms before. Just don't fall asleep on your arms. The marker will get on your face. True story. Right. I think that just about wraps it up for today. Thank you. Thank you for coming and joining us. See you next time. Sincerely, Sleepy Ghost.